You're listening to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy. Today, we'll be talking to the amazing Julie Washington. We discuss how literacy learning can be supported by language variations. Thinking about language variations as a strength rather than a weakness. How does this apply to reading, writing, speaking, and spelling? Listen in to learn more. Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy, Literacy Podcast. Today, we are so excited because we have a guest who we've been looking forward to for quite some time now. Yeah, we're here with Julie Washington. We're so excited. She is a professor at the University of California, Irvine, and she focuses her work on the intersection of language, literacy, and poverty in African-American children, the impact of cultural dialects on early literacy skills, language development, and disorders. That's a lot. (laughs) And we'll talk to her about some of these topics today. Um, But yep, we'll, we'll have a great conversation. We're excited. Yeah. So Julie, welcome to the podcast. Hey, how are you? It's nice to finally meet you two and to um, talk to you about anything and everything. Well, Julie, we're so glad that you're here. Could you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to study these specific focus areas? Oh, sure. I'd be happy to. Um, I am currently a professor in the School of Education at the University of California in Irvine. Um, I started my career at the University of Michigan, and I was both a doctoral student there, and when I finished my degree, I joined the faculty. And right after I finished my degree, I started doing some work in the local public schools. And I was really interested. There was a lot of conversation at that time about the achievement gap. It turns out the achievement gap is largest in college towns. And so I was living in a college town. They were really struggling. They were really struggling. Actually, there's a group that focuses on that. It's called the Minority Student Achievement Network. It's a network of college towns around the country. Stanford, North um, Evanston, Madison, Ann Arbor, all of these huge college towns. So I was in Ann Arbor, which is one of those towns, and they have been, they were really struggling with the gap in achievement. And I'm a speech pathologist. And so I was really interested in how we were contributing as a discipline because a lot of um, African-American kids were qualified for special education services as speech and language impaired. And so I figured that we were contributing to this overrepresentation. And imagine my surprise, though, when I got into the school and one of the bigger issues was reading. Um, that mm-hmm. so many African American kids were struggling with reading. And so I got interested in how the language issues and the reading problem intersected um, with each other. Mm-hmm. And because I study um, cultural dialect, I was particularly interested in um, how dialect might impact the development of reading, and particularly African American English. And I have to say at this point that I didn't make that up. 
Um, this wasn't something that I initiated. <laughs> it was a it was a line of research <laughs> in the sixties um, and seventies mm. focused on how dialect might impact reading, but it turned out that it was kind of dropped and people weren't really looking at it anymore and weren't really talking about it. And so we kind of revived um, on our research team at Michigan, this focus on dialect and language. And one of our first tasks was to um, talk about African-American English and children, young children, Mm -hmm. because before that, The work was primarily with um, adolescents and adults. And so we didn't know anything about the developmental nature of dialect. And so we worked for the first few years of my career on just identifying the features of dialect in children and seeing how they might be different. And I had this experience whenever I um, submitted an article of having people say, well, the list you have is not complete. It doesn't include this, this, and this. And I would look at my samples and I'm like, well, kids don't do that. (laughs) And so we Mm. had to take a step back and talk about what dialect looks like in children who are four, five, six years of age, who are just developing complex language and who are starting school. And so it was like this mix of... um, um, sort of codifying dialect for children, um, trying to discover how that intersected with reading. And one of the things that you um, mentioned on your list of things that I do was we were also interested in distinguishing language differences from language disorder in dialect speakers, because we were having so much trouble at that time with overrepresentation on special education caseloads. And you fast forward to 2023, and I'm going to be at a conference in a couple of weeks talking about underrepresentation of African American kids. So there's been this big pendulum swing since. Oh, interesting. Then. So it's been an interesting journey, but that's kind of where I started. Yeah. That's so so interesting. <laughs> I'm wondering if we can dig in a little. You already touched on some of these, but now I'm ready to like dig in. Okay. We actually, we, so you wrote a great article with Mark Seidenberg, teaching reading to African-American children. I don't even, now it feels like it was probably a little while ago, but <laughs> we actually had a podcast um, where we talked to Mitchell Brookins about that article and it was a great conversation. Um, so we were, we were excited to like have an actual conversation with you about it, but I'm wondering like just to start the conversation, where do we start? Like, what what do we need to know about teaching reading to African-American children? And I can imagine some people might say, like, well, don't we just teach all children the same way to read? Like, that's there's this science now that says adult, we teach everyone learns how to read the same way. So I'm really interested to hear your take on the, like, the differences, especially around language. Yeah, it's really interesting because with the focus on the science of reading, there is this sort of yeah, well, we know the science of reading and we just teach it to all children and then children will learn to read. And so what we're saying is, you know, there's that conversation on the one side and we've given up the idea with the science of reading, it appears, that differentiated instruction is still important. And so no matter what you're teaching children, um, instruction has to be differentiated. So you may be teaching them though all of the same skills, but how the skills are taught is the issue. And that's something I think we kind of overlook. So yes, 
The science of reading applies to all children, regardless of their language background and race, ethnicity. Yes, I'm saying that out loud here. Um, but how we get to um, teaching with um, more success and fidelity with children has to be has to take into account the differences that they bring to reading instruction. If there was a one-size-fits-all way to teach reading, we would know it by now. There has never been, there will never be, and the science of reading is not that. It will never be that. There's no magic bullet, one-size-fits-all approach to reading. But we have a science of reading that tells us in order for children to successfully learn to read, these are the skills the abilities that they need to have and that teachers need to be imparting. And so we do know that, and that's great. Um, It's not like something that we just discovered. It is a history of reading research that's come together to help us see that there are some skills like phonemic and phonological awareness, vocabulary, all of these things that we need to teach in order for children to be good readers. And so then that brings us to kids who have language variation, right? So we know um, that when we teach reading, morphology and morphological awareness are really important, for example. So what happens when you have a group of kids who delete morphemes? Do you just teach them exactly the same way you teach everybody else? Mm -hmm. Can you give us an example of that, Julie? (laughs) So It's so true. So some of the major features of African-American English impact morphology. And so, for example, if you are an African-American speaker, you can delete the past tense ED um, marker from words. So you can say he jumped over the fence instead of he jumped over the fence. You can say he jumped over the fence instead of he jumps over the fence. You can say he um, jumping over the fence and delete the is. You can delete all the S's, third person singular, plural, possessive, past tense ED, all of those are variably included in African-American English. So if you're a teacher who's teaching reading and you get to morphology, which uh, impacts not only spelling, writing, reading, but meaning, do you not need to spend more time on those than you would with a child for whom they are always included? And so that's what we're that's what we're saying here is that when you and, you know, I study African-American children, we found very similar needs for children who speak other dialects also. And so, you know, what we were um, trying to point out in that article is, yes, these children absolutely can learn to read. Yes, they are struggling to learn to read. Yes, we have a part in how. to teach reading and improve the outcomes for these students. We have a lot of science that tells us what we need to do. And so the question is, how do we um, apply what we know differently for different populations? Yeah. I What stands out to me is that it uplifts our learners as looking at their strengths yes. and looking at like from a strength-based approach rather than thinking of it as something that is a negative thing, right? It's, it's using the oral language to, to help support this idea of 
teaching the uh, the general American English, right? Like as as it's written and things like that, but then also really respecting the African American English. Is that do you think that that is like a, a a good take on that? It is, and it's something we really want to encourage because when we think about teaching um, reading to African American children. Um, when African-American children who speak African-American English, not all do, but when African-American children who speak African-American English show up at school, they are already experts in their community's language system. They know how it works. They know when it's correct. They know when somebody's not doing it right. And they get to school. And instead of building on this expertise that students have, we try to squash what they're doing and get them to make this switch. And the reality is, in asking children to make a switch, we're telling them to forego what they already know, because now that doesn't matter, and we need to teach you something else. And that's, I think that's a real problem for us, and maybe may have contributed to some of the difficulty we see students continue to have. You know, I've been saying recently that um, Louisa Moat said that teaching reading is rocket science. And so as a teacher, how in the world do we expect children to learn rocket science with (laughs) using a language system that they don't know? And so instead, we can do exactly what you said, Lori, affirm what they know, um, support their expertise and teach them to read by integrating that into our instruction. I was going to just say, it must be so confusing for students to hear, like, that's wrong, right? However, yes. you know, like I, you know, jumped, <laughs> jump instead of jumped, and they hear it's wrong, but then they go home and that's how their mom says it, their dad, their, their grandma, brother and sister. That's, everybody. Yeah, that's yes. like, what, like, how confusing is that for a child to hear it's wrong when everyone in their life is saying it <laughs> and that's what they know? I I can just imagine they they walk away thinking that I don't get it. I don't get what's going on here. (laughs) And then we see later, like at the other end, when one of the most um, probably illuminating experiences I've had related to this is actually talking to college students who, you know, I go into this class every year and talk to the students about African-American English and reading And what the conversations that I've had with these students have been both important and heartbreaking. So the first student who ever responded when I did this said to me, I didn't know the way that I talked was a real thing. I thought it was just wrong. And Oh, wow. Yes. And so then we had this long conversation about why did you think that? Because my teachers told me that. And then the other students who were African-American jumping in <clears throat> and saying, you know, I had that experience too. My, teach, some, my teacher used to put a pencil between my teeth and tell me to say these words correctly. And, you know, every time I go back to this class and I'm doing it again in April and I'm always happy to do it, I'm going back to this class again. And every time I go, I have these conversations with students about how their use of language was ridiculed, was um, taught uh, to them that it's incorrect. So now as adults, they're trying to think about who they are and the language they use. And their, their resources are so tied up in trying to make sure they're doing it right, that they're not contributing. And that is a travesty. And it's so sad. 
Julie, can I ask you a question? This might be slightly controversial. I don't even know. Um, but I, I feel like I've heard I feel like I've heard um, from African-American colleagues that even within the African-American community, there can be some pushback against African-American English, like even like they don't want to acknowledge that it's <laughs> legitimate well, yeah. in a way. The most, is that- the most pushback I get is from the African-American community, because for us. This is not an into, this is not just an intellectual issue. It's not just a research issue. This is our lives. And right. um, one of the things we know is that, you know, we talk about dialects as being high prestige or low prestige. And a low prestige variety is one where when people hear you speak it, they think negative things about you as a speaker. And African American English is low prestige. And so as a community, we know that if you are not speaking general American English, you are very unlikely to get that job to be admitted to to um, that college class, to be respected by your peers. And so it has real life consequences for us. And so our parents taught us that you can't use this linguistic system. You can't do this. And so, you know, my own, my mother She was a stickler for it. She's like, you know, you need to speak the Queen's English, which I do not, but I can't speak general (laughs) American English. And um, African-American English was not allowed in our home. We were taught that it was incorrect. And her um, conversation was that if you want to succeed in this country, in this world, you have to be able to use standard English. And so we all have that history and we know that um, no matter what I say, no matter what anybody says, uh, researchers, I actually said this to someone at a conference. He talked about how the esteem that African-American English is with which it's held has changed. And so it's no longer this really low prestige dialect. And I said, that's not true. The fact that it's popular to study is a completely different issue. Its esteem has Mm -hmm. not changed because if a professor candidate walked into your university using African-American English in the interview, you would not hire him or her. That is the tug that African-American people have. You know, we know we need to teach children to read, but we also know from experience that they have to learn general American English. And so what I'm saying is, we're not talking about children not learning general American English. We're talking about them learning to read. And one of the things we've learned in our research is reading helps you make the switch to general American English. And so reading and language are um, intertwined. They are, it's a reciprocal process. Um, language influences reading and reading influences language. That's something we're learning more and more. And so what we're saying is, no, I'm not suggesting at all that children not learn to use the language of education, media and commerce, which is general American English, because if I do that, then I'm relegating them to, you know, not really being able to leave their communities and succeed the way that they want to. But what I am saying is that when a young child enters school using a language system at which they have this expertise And we are also trying to teach them a highly language-based skill. We need to allow them to use the language that they know to support learning to read. 
So yes, I'm yes. glad you brought that up. <laughs> Okay, good. <laughs> I that surprised me that it, it well not after you explained it, but it surprised me a bit about the pushback. But that I mean, it makes sense. Oh, um, I, I was doing a talk once, and I was standing at the podium, and I saw these four black ladies walk in, and I thought, uh oh. So they stood at the back, and afterward, they came mm-hmm. up to me and said, "We came in here, we were ready to let you have it." Then we listen. Oh no! Yes, we listen to what you said, and it makes so much sense to us. And um, so, yes, I'm I'm completely aware. I've um, and I know that it's something that um, African American, especially educators, struggle with because we know what it's meant for us. And I know that what children really need is to be able to use both systems. So when you're in the community and you're talking to your friends, you need to be able to make that switch and use it in the community if your community speaks it. And then when you're in school, eventually you need to make this transition. But what I'm saying is there is not any reason to beat that transition into kids. And I don't mean beat physically, but there's no reason (laughs) to hammer this when kids are coming to school and trying to learn arguably the hardest language skill they will ever need to learn, which is reading. There is no reason to do it at that time. Let children use what they know to learn what they need to know. It makes so much sense. And I'm I'm actually wondering, Julie, if we could take a moment because we're, I think there are some um, like vocabulary in the (laughs) article that you wrote, for lack of a better way to put it, or vocabulary that we're using that I think might be helpful for listeners to understand a little bit more deeply. And I'm thinking about like the differences between dialect and language variation. And I'm also thinking about the differences between translanguaging and code switching. Are you able to to speak about those just so we can all have a baseline understanding? Sure. So at every... In every discipline, we see these changes in vocabulary over time and the way that we're using words or we switch one word for another because one because a word starts to take on like a negative connotation for people. And dialect is like that. So when I talk about language variation, I'm still talking about dialect. I'm just not using that word any, as much anymore. And it's because people tend to think about dialects as subsystems which leads people when you're thinking about people, because we conflate people with the way they talk, that dialects are seen as less than the major language from which they derive. So we have started to talk about use dialect less and talk about language variation more because what African-American English is, is a variant of standard American English. It's not less than standard American English. It's on a continuum of American English. So if you think about American English on a line, there's general American English, um, Appalachian English, African-American English, Southern English, Midwestern English, all on this continuum together. And so by changing the terminology, we're trying to change people's view of how these variations in language work. It's not um, American English is up here at the top and everything else is under that. It's like, no, it's on the continuum. And so many of us know many different dialects on, on this continuum or kinds of language variation. When I was at Georgia State, I had a student who spoke Southern English, General American English, Gullah, 
and African-American English, all on this continuum of American English. And so that's why we are talking about language variation more than we are calling it dialect. So it's this sort of um, shift in the way that we're thinking about variations in language. Um, Translanguaging and code switching are interesting because they're not different. Um, Translanguaging is a kind of code switching. But the way that we talk about code switching primarily in um, research and in practice is making a shift from one code to the other completely. So when I talk about code switching, I'm saying you came in here using African-American English. Now I want you to switch to the use of general American English. And um, that's not really what we want children to do, especially when they're learning to read. And other countries are better at this, especially South Africa. I met with a professor there who does translanguaging research, and I read a lot of his work. And um, I agree that what translanguaging says is not you need to make a switch. It means that you need to have access to your full linguistic repertoire when you're learning a language skill. So you don't need to switch from what you know to the code that this new thing is using. You need to use your whole repertoire to help you move toward this other system and to help you learn in this system. And so that's kind of the change we're talking about with translanguaging, that when we're talking about teaching children to read, if you look at the writing of African-American children who use African-American English, you'll see that it's sprinkled with African-American English. So kids are naturally translanguaging. They're taking the system that they know and they're mixing it with the new system that they're learning and they do it naturally. And so our view is that if you can allow children to use everything they know about language to learn these new things, that the connections that they'll make will be clearer and stronger than taking a system that you don't really know very well and trying to learn this really hard thing using this new system. Your kids are just not making the connections. And so what we're learning is that, yes, we're able to teach like decoding to African-American children when they're young they look pretty good on our instruments. Then about third grade, they look they don't look very good anymore. And we start seeing like this downward shift. And some of it is a shallow knowledge of the things that we're teaching, that they've never really made these strong mental representations, strong connections that we thought they were making, and they don't have the opportunity to do so. And in this article, we talk about you know, translanguaging, letting them use their own system to help them make these connections. But also we talk about more opportunity for practice, more exposure, because this is not only new to me as a an academic skill, it's new to me as a linguistic skill. Right. And that's what I keep thinking is when kids are like writing is right, the highest form of output. So language is that in between. And that's really like the bridge that we're talking about here, right? Like between reading and writing and that input output, if you will. Yeah. And I, that's what is striking me is like that, that, that this is the bridge. It's something that's familiar and we want to keep that familiarity there. Yeah. It's interesting you say that because the, um, the world health organization has a picture of translanguaging that I use 
And the picture is of a person with a puzzle piece and a hole in the bridge. And the, the, the job is to take that piece and fit it onto the bridge mm-hmm. so that you're bringing these two pieces together. And so that's exactly what it is. I promise I didn't see that before I said that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because it took me there naturally. And that's exactly what right. this picture shows. It's that I have this piece that is me and I need to connect what I know to this other piece of the bridge that's in front of me so that these two things make sense for me. Yeah. Yeah. And that just seems so like relatable for teachers. Sorry, Melissa, go ahead. No, it's okay. (laughs) Uh, I was just wondering about, you know, for a teacher or anyone who's unfamiliar with African-American English, I could imagine them thinking like, well, how many differences could there really be? You know, like you get, you gave one example and I, I, I don't know how, I don't even know how I want you to quantify this, Julie, but I'm just curious, like, are there a lot of differences between African-American English and general American English? There are a lot of differences, but there don't have to be a lot of differences. There just have to be differences. So one of the examples that I have a doctoral student who um, is an amazing reading teacher, and we just finished writing an article together where she has talked to me about her own experience as a white teacher working with Black kids and teaching them to read. And we use this example um, in the article as a vignette, and it's her experience. And so she was talking to this child, and she was talking about gold. And so like something gold. And the child stopped her and said, do you mean gold like jewelry or gold like in football? or in sports, Mm -hmm. because the child can delete the D. And so do you mean gold like a necklace or do you mean gold like football? And she said, you know, as a reflection, she stepped back and said, I wonder how many words there are like that for this child where Mm -hmm. he has to figure out which one I mean. And so then she took it upon herself. She said, I need to learn more about the dialect And then she integrated it into her lessons that whenever she knew that there was a word that was going to be impacted by additions or deletions of phonemes or morphemes in African-American English, she integrated them into her teaching. And so it doesn't have to be a hundred of them. It can be 10 of them. But if you use them enough in class and kids have enough to figure out it doesn't mean they don't comprehend. It means that it slows them down while they're trying to figure out which one you mean. Mm-hmm. And so if we yeah. can influence that just by figuring out which things are going to be impacted and integrating it into teaching, then boy, we could make their jobs a lot, a lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> that was my next question for you was like, you know, most of the people listening right now are probably teachers <laughs> and they're probably asking like, well, what do I do? <laughs> and is that the recommendation is like, you know, knowing the students in front of you, whatever the language variation is of the, the students that you have, is it learning about those variations? Well or? Said. Whoever's sitting in front of you, you need to know what they're doing differently with language and you'll hear it. And if the, the more kids there are in the classroom, the more likely the teacher is familiar with what they're doing. And so instead of just thinking, wow, these kids never use final consonants and thinking about it in like a pejorative way, 
Think about it as it relates to your instruction and instead say, wow, these kids aren't using final consonants. I wonder if they can hear them when I'm using them during reading instruction. I wonder if they'll recognize them and include them when they're spelling. And the answer is no. And so the way that you use language um, or speech is often the way that you perceive it. And so if you say with instead of with, I promise you, you will spell it W-I-F. Yeah. (laughs) Why wouldn't you? (laughs) (laughs) And so the, you know, the first thing is to know who's sitting in front of you. Who Mm -hmm. are the kids sitting in front of me? What kinds of variants do I hear in their language? How might these variants impact learning to read? And because we now know that reading is a language skill, what your children are doing with language will absolutely impact reading in some way. And so your first job is to learn about the variation and then to think about how when you're teaching phonology or phonemic awareness, one, how it might influence what you're doing, two, how you might integrate it in to help kids hear the differences and learn the differences, and um, then to read. That's one of the things that's often missing, especially in urban classrooms, is reading. Reading is not just about instruction. It's about reading. It's about practice. Good readers read. Good writers write. Good speakers speak. And so you're never going to be a good reader without the opportunity to read. And I do not want to hear, these kids don't have any books at home. Well, send some home. I don't want to hear their parents don't read to them. You know what? If you have kids who are struggling with reading, we all know enough about reading to know that parents may also be struggling. And so that I don't want to hear that. What I want to see is reading in classrooms and in urban classrooms where so many kids are struggling. I understand that teachers get really overwhelmed by the number of kids in their room who are struggling with reading and they really get focused on the, the instruction piece. But I know that my kids went to schools where kids weren't struggling with reading. And what you saw in those classrooms was kids sprawled out on bean bags reading a book. You saw kids in the library sitting on the floor reading books. You saw kids everywhere reading because the teachers weren't as stressed with the reading instruction piece. But what I am saying is that even in the presence of all of that difficulty with learning to read, reading has to be included, not just reading instruction. Yeah. And we can read to the kids in school. Yes. I love <laughs> when you read to kids and kids love it. I mean, I remember when um, teachers are reading chapter books, especially, and they're reading something really exciting and they say, well, that's it for today. And you're like, no. I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I also think, Julie, there are so many options, right? Like with the, what are they called? Like the, those taken plays, they're play, they're called playaways that like kids could check out of the library of yes. school gives them a pair of headsets, take it home and listen. Right. I mean, right. that could be something that a parent and a kid put a headset in and listen together that's and have that shared YouTube. experience. I mean, YouTube, there's so many there's YouTube so read alouds. So I, I love that idea of like taking away the excuses because it really is, there's so many options. That's and right. There, there are, you know, ways for kids to get access to books. So many yeah. ways. I think that kind of leads me to think about this, that idea of like biases, like kind of as an educator, I, 
have to check my biases at the door, right? Like it's, I, I have to think about this in a, like we started off the conversation in a really strength-based way. And how can I make it happen if it's not happening? How can I support this effort rather than thinking like in a detrimental way, which I, I know is like such a challenge when you're in the mix every single day. So we'll put it out there. It's we love a, you teachers. It's hard. It's also <laughs> a challenge when it's your um, life orientation. So yeah. you believe this about kids who use language in a certain way or who look a certain way. You don't just believe it at school. You probably believe it overall. And um, so checking your bias is um, easier said than done. And when I say to teachers, you need to believe that all the kids in your class um, can learn and that because you are a certain child, you can't learn. I promise you all the teachers in the room will say, well, of course I believe that. So it's hard to change something that you don't know is an issue for you. So in some ways, at first, you have to identify your biases. And um, once you identify them, then work on changing them. You know, uh, many years ago when I was in Michigan, and I still have these data, and maybe someday in some life I'll publish them, um, we gave um, teachers, parents, and children the same survey And we called it a self-efficacy survey, and we asked them all the same questions. And the questions were things like, does this child or do you or does your child have the potential to go on to college? Will your child be a college graduate? Will this child be a college graduate? And these were kids in um, kindergarten, first and second grade. And what we learned was that teachers viewed kids' potential based on their current performance. So even if you were in first grade, if you were struggling with reading, the teacher said on this survey, this child is not going to go on to college. Oh my God, then what is the point of continuing to come to school? If you believe that my current performance can't be improved and I can move on and become a college graduate. So that's a bias that not only influences your thinking, but it will absolutely influence the way you instruct this child. Research on um, on um, teacher expectations, talk about them as self-fulfilling prophecies. That if you believe this about children, it becomes prophetic because it influences the way that you instruct them. So this is not, these are not glib, you need to change your biases, unimportant issues. They are absolutely critical to the outcomes and the future of the children who are sitting in front of you. And I imagine the the language plays a huge part in that, because like you said earlier, you know, if it's, if it's a language variation seen as low prestige, like you mentioned, what does that do to... <laughs> To, to what what people think about the children right away, you know? They exactly. Can... We, we really conflate the way you talk with who you are, how smart you are, yeah. how capable you are, what your future is going to be. And that has significant consequences for not only overall academic outcomes, but for whether a teacher actually believes that children can read or will learn. Yeah. And so... And that just kind of broke my heart because, I mean... You're saying even in like kindergarten, first grade, but 
<laughs> we still need to teach them. <laughs> exactly. And we need for that teaching to not be perfunctory. I'm teaching them because I'm getting paid to teach them. Yeah. It needs to be, I'm teaching them so that this child will have the best possible outcomes that he or she can have and will be able to go on and do the things they want to do in their life. That's what we're doing as teachers. As a university instructor, it's clear to me that I have these eager undergrads sitting in front of me <laughs> who someday want to be doing what I'm doing or things that I have done. And my job is to prepare them for that. And when they come to that process with different kinds of skills and abilities and challenges, then I have to change what I'm doing with that student in order to be sure that they get the content in the class. And um, I know that that's my job. And I know teachers know it's their job too. But this issue of what are your biases? What do you really think about the students sitting in front of you? How does their language use influence what you think? Mm -hmm. It makes me think so much of the uh, opportunity myth from TNTP where they found that the four key resources that students need in their daily school experiences are grade level appropriate assignments, strong instruction, deep engagement, and what we're talking about, high expectations, yep. teachers who believe that students can meet grade level standards. And that, that always strikes me, right? Like I send my kid off to soccer practice three times a week. Do I send her with a coach who thinks that she's not going to be able to meet the, the standards. And if that she's not uh, the standards of the play, the practice, the game. Right. And if she's not, then I, I put my faith in the coach that he, he's going to teach her. That's not that he's going <laughs> to say, well, I guess you're just not going to keep playing soccer, <laughs> right? Like we're going to just teach you what you need to know. We're like you said, Julie, we're going to practice it. Right. And we're going to keep trying. We're going to keep right. learning together. And, and, but my expectation is that you're going to learn how to do this skill or this thing. And I'll keep because teaching I think you, you how to do it because <laughs> right. I think you can. And because I'm teaching you how to do it. Right. 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 <laughs> and I'm going to teach every child in front of me to play soccer the best that I can and the best that they can. They can. Yeah. Right. But you know, Rod Page, who was one of our former um, uh, secretaries Secretary. of education, I think it was during the Bush administration talked about the tyranny of low expectation and mm -hmm. how it influences student outcomes. And he really pushed for um, in our lowest income communities, making sure that those students are getting the same high quality instruction as their students are with more resources, because those low expectations are a self-fulfilling prophecy. Oh my gosh, we could we could keep talking about this. I I love talking about this, but go ahead, Melissa. <laughs> I was just wondering, like, as a I, I always put my teacher hat on, you know. I'm like, as a teacher, I'm just wondering, like, what do I do now, right? Like, if I if I want to learn more, Julie, do you have any recommendations for teachers of where they can go to learn about different language variations, African American English specifically? Yeah, sure. I mean, there are a few of us out here who are doing this work. It's not just me. Um, there are a number of us who are doing it. And so if you look for those people, the work that they're doing, you know, Julie Washington, Lakeisha Johnson, um, Brandy Gatlin Nash, Nicole Patton Terry, um, Jana Edding at 
LSU. There, um, Monique Mills, who's at the University of Houston. There are a bunch of us who are looking at these issues with children in very different ways. And some of us who are in the trenches trying to change it, like Ryan Lee James, who was a student of mine and who's now out there in the trenches in Atlanta trying to influence outcomes. There are a bunch of us who are doing this. So there is, um, go to the research. The research is there. The lists of um, features are there. How they influence language and spelling and reading and writing are all out there. Um, and so you can look for those. Also, I learned, and they are, I don't think they're, you know, like letting people know well enough, is the LAUSD, the Los Angeles Unified School District, has a program called, um, oh, I know I know I'm not going to remember it because I'm talking. I think we wrote it down. Is it the Academic English Mastery Program? That's it. The Academic oh, English Mastery Program. <laughs> so on their website, they have taken all these different language variations, Hawaiian-influenced English, um, Spanish-influenced English, African-American English, and listed the differences um, that you will see in those language variations from general American English. And I think that's a fantastic resource. And California, you know, which I've been here now for two years, um, is so diverse. And so yeah. there's so much linguistic diversity here. And so it, the schools are encountering it every day. And we're not just talking about kids who speak other languages. We're talking about children who have within language variation. So they use American English in a way that is different in their communities. And so I think that's a great resource. But teachers should also be reading. Like you came to me because of an article. And yeah. um, that we wrote it. I was happy um, American educator approached me about writing it. And I was really happy to do it because of the wide um, audience that it has among teachers. And so Mark and I got together, Mark Seidenberg, and wrote this article. And we were both very excited because we knew that our target audience is not just our friends, fellow researchers, <laughs> but right. also the teachers that we're trying to influence. And this is a publication that teachers read. Yeah. Well, we I I'm linking everything. I know it's so hard. I'm linking everything. Um and I have the the resource from the LAUSD that it has some great printables. So just a little plug there for educators listening. It's linked in the show notes. Check it out. There's some print printables, but also in the article that we're talking about here with Julie, there is a table that helps us understand the key features of African-American English. If you're looking for a resource for yourself, just to kind of start with, I think it's a really nice little like introduction overview to it. And then you can go a little bit deeper. So quick plug for that. Julie, is there anything that we're missing that you'd like to share that you just feel compelled to say as we close out this, this podcast? Yeah. The only thing I want to really want to say is I don't want teachers to get overwhelmed by the information because I realize how hard they're working. Um, mm-hmm. Their work have always been working hard and are working harder still in the face of the challenges that the pandemic created. And so, you know, this is not a, um, you need to work harder, harder, harder. This is not what that conversation is about. This conversation is about, 
you know, you know, we have a science of reading. Many teachers are still learning it. Some of them already know it. And what we're asking you is to look at the children who are sitting in front of you and differentiate the science of reading based on what those students' needs are, whether their students are African-American, American Indian, Latino, or Latinx, um, whatever the challenges are or whatever the student looks like in front of you, um, take some time to figure out how your instruction might be impacted and see it as something that you can do to make reading less cognitively difficult for children. We're not asking you to change children. We're asking you to adapt your instruction to include them. What struck me, Julia, Julia, from an earlier part of this conversation is when you said we're essentially not taking away or changing what students are learning. Right. It's how we are teaching. And, you know, you might teach it one way to everyone and then realize, oh, my gosh, this this group of students needs a little bit more or these kids need a little bit more. So you're going to change your approach there. Right. And that's where I think I'm struck is we're, we're not saying change what you're doing. The, what stays the same. That's, that's that body of reading science research. And I just, I just can't say that enough. Like I just, that's, what's really striking me. I took a nice notes while you were talking and (laughs) we'll we'll make some, yeah, we'll make some, it's your puzzle piece. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's how we help them get there. Yep. Yes. Yes. And one more thing I would want to say, and I've said it over and over again, and I just want to punctuate it. Children are not blank slates. They do not come to school knowing nothing. They know a lot. They have a lot of skills and it's incumbent upon us to figure out what those skills are and how we can leverage them to help them learn to read. Um, they know so much and they have a lot of linguistic expertise. It is not always in the language of the classroom or the language of print, which is more important. And so what they know and what we need them to know, we're extending what they know. We're not erasing what they know. So we're not trying to get rid of what you already know. We're trying to extend what you know to include what we're trying to teach you. Mic drop. that's so good well Julie thank you so much for this amazing conversation I'm wondering if you have a couple minutes to do some fun questions with us at the end sure (laughs) all right so we have a round of four like rapid fire no pressure questions just to learn a little bit more about you okay are you ready Lori all right so our first question is what do you love to read you're assuming that I read. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I guess nothing is a completely appropriate and yes, fine answer. <laughs> but I read, I love um, mysteries and kind of mm. crime kind of books. Nice. What do you love to watch? Oh, now see, that's very personal because <laughs> these, days, these days I'm basically watching trash. Um, <laughs> we do, we do too sometimes. Don't worry. <laughs> 90 day fiance happily ever after has been my recent binge. I also, I love this. <laughs> I also love major crimes. I love that show and the closer I've been watching like reruns of those and Rizzoli and Isles, 
on smart TV. I mean, like nothing educational, nothing. <laughs> so you need it though. When you work so hard, you, yeah, you need do that it all outlet. day. Yeah, I think everybody can relate to that. <laughs> right, what do you love to listen to? Oh, I I love podcasts. I have discovered podcasts, and um, I really like to listen to. Um, stories about things that have happened, um, sort of like my, you know, some of the things I watch on TV, they're um, true stories about things that have happened. And I listen to podcasts when I walk. I listen to the crime ones. I I was going to say, you're, it seems like you might be into the crime. Yeah, a lot of (laughs) those are good. (laughs) Have you listened to the one, Melissa, you're going to know the title of it, but it's the the serial. Is it This American Life? Well, what, what season am I talking about? Is it the not first, this? Am I, the first am one. I talking about the first one? Yeah. Have you listened to that, Julie? No, it's this American. Oh my gosh. I'm writing it down. No. <laughs> okay. So write down cereal. Okay. Yeah. And we'll, we'll, S E R I A L. Not like Melissa. breakfast cereal. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like Captain Crunch. <laughs> yeah. But I, I love podcasts and I have, I've learned a lot from them. And I have just enjoyed some of the, the stories. And yeah. it's like reality television in your ears. <laughs> you can take it anywhere, too. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Why do you do what you love for education and for literacy? I do it because it's important. And I know that the children that we are interested in are underserved, understudied, and um, we need to know so much more because they're struggling not only now, but we know how much they will struggle in the future unless we get this right. Well, we are beyond grateful for you being here today. It was a true honor. We we just adore your work and and thank you for being here. We're just really grateful. Thank I don't you. know what else to say other than Absolutely. thank you. Thank you so, much. <laughs> it was so much fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening, literacy lovers. To stay connected with us, sign up for our email list at literacypodcast.com. And to keep learning together, join the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy Podcast Facebook group. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. If this episode resonated with you, take a moment to share with a teacher friend or leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Just a quick reminder that the views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy Podcast are not necessarily the opinions of Great Minds, PBC, or its employees. We appreciate you so much, and we're so glad you're here to learn with us.